You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Well, I don't really need to remind you again, but that, that Matthew 24, 25 is where Jesus is speaking of his return. And we have already looked a few weeks ago at what he says about the world that we must live in before he returns. And then this morning I tried to, to speak to you about what would happen when he returns. That his return will be sudden, unexpected, visible, audible, bring huge changes to the whole uh, world and universe, which will be radically uh, redrawn, as it were, because this old world and, and this universe will be, will be burned up, we're told, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And on that same day, uh, Jesus will gather all before him, that resurrection of both the just and the unjust, and the judgment of all. What I want to ask tonight is the question, what does this mean for us? And what, what should we do in response to all of this? Now, when, when you come to think about the return of Christ, um, historically, it has been a subject that has caused great debate and many divisions within the Christian church, and still does. And sometimes I think we get tied up with things that are relatively unimportant. I'm not saying that any of it is unimportant. It's important that we do try to understand what the Bible says. But, you know, sometimes people have majored on the signs of the times, for example. And I remember in my young days as a Christian, it wasn't uncommon to have an, um, prophecy meetings organized where uh, some speakers would purport to be able to deal with the, the signs of the times and what's going to happen in the future and what's going to happen with, with Russia and, and so forth and so on. And what's the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation and all sorts of wonderful questions like that. And of course there's the whole issue of the millennium then. Um, this thousand year period which is only mentioned in one chapter of the Bible in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation um, which is a very symbolic book and, and um, my own view is that that book deals with numbers or uses numbers and, and pictures in a very symbolic way and yet some people take that particular number, 1,000 years, as a, as a very literal number. And, and as I said this morning, they, they would talk about two comings of Christ, one where he comes and secretly takes his children home in, in the so-called rapture, which I don't believe is in Scripture at all. And then a 1,000 years later, he will come back to judge the wicked. Now, I, I think that's a misinterpretation of Scripture, and it's, it's a... It's it's basing a, a, a very dubious, to say the least, idea on one single chapter of the Bible, which is a, a dangerous thing to do. And, and down through history, of course, people have made predictions about the coming of Christ. We know that the Jehovah's Witnesses have done that and had to eat their words in a sense. They predicted he would come sometime about 1914, I think it was, and then they had to say, well, he, nothing happened, so he must have come secretly, and Seventh-day Adventists predicted his coming, and others have done the same and had to 
keep their words or, or go down some sort of different avenue. They do that in spite of the fact that the Scriptures say that no one knows the day or the hour. That should close the matter, shouldn't it? That should close the matter as far as predictions are concerned. Not even Jesus as the God-man knew that day when he was here on earth. So sometimes people get all tied up in knots over different questions like this. And very often in, in the middle of all the theories that are bandied about and about the when and the how of Christ's return, the main emphasis of Scripture is forgotten. And what is the main emphasis of Scripture? How would you answer that question if I were to put it to you individually? Well, the main emphasis is that we have to be ready for it. That's the emphasis. You see that, for example, verses uh, 44, 42, 43, 44, where Jesus says in chapter 24, Therefore, keep watch, because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. Understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let, let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour. You do not expect him. Keep watch. Look out for it and be ready for it. That's the thrust of Scripture. Not all these weird and wonderful arguments about uh, different times and, and signs and all sorts of things, but be ready. Be ready for it. So how can we be ready for this momentous event? That uh, momentous event phrase I take unashamedly from a book by a man called W.J. Greer. He's a Northern Irish man who, who wrote this book uh, about the Second Coming. It's published, I think, by the Banner of Truth. I think it's still in print. If you want a good little book, it's not that thick, uh, to take you through what the Bible teaches about the return of Christ, look for that one, The Momentous Event by W.J. Greer. Easy enough to read, and I think very, very biblical. How can we then be ready for that momentous event when earth's history will be brought to an end uh, by the return of Jesus. And I hope you understand that. I hope you are convinced by that, men and women. You know, we, we live in a fearful world, and I suppose that fear has been nearly multiplied, perhaps, in the sense over last, the last number of years because of the, the whole talk of global warming. Is the world going to burn up and become uninhabitable? And there are those scaremongers who would point in that sort of direction. Is it going to be blown up by a nuclear explosion? President Putin put his nuclear arsenal on alert at the start of this war with Ukraine. And one of the, in the early weeks of this war, his armies were fighting around the Chernobyl, the Chernobyl nuclear reactor. And if, if he had fired missiles into that reactor, it would have caused a devastating nuclear explosion. Didn't happen. And he's withdrawn his forces from that uh, part of Ukraine. But is that what's going to happen to the world? Or are we going to be hit by an asteroid from space that blows the planet apart? All of these things are talked about sometimes by people. And if you know the Bible and if you know the Lord, you can say, no, no, no. This world is going to go on. People will be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Jesus comes back. That's what's going to happen. Be confident of that. 
but how can we be ready for that day? I want to say four B's tonight. B in the sense of B-E, not just the letter B. The word B. To be ready for that day, first of all, and this is fundamental, we need to be converted. Secondly, God's people need to be faithful. Thirdly, we should be holy. And fourthly, we should be encouraged as we look forward to that day. Be converted, be faithful, be holy, be encouraged. Four B's, not hard to remember. You can take them home with you, and I hope that you will be able to, to think about them. Be converted. This is absolutely essential, of course. This is foundation. And I, I talked about these things way back at the beginning of the year when we were looking at some very fundamental truths about the gospel. We looked at the new birth, for example. We looked at repentance, and, and we looked at faith. And you know that of all of those things, the Bible says quite categorically that they are indispensable. If we're not converted, if we haven't been born again, if we don't repent, if we don't truly trust in Christ, then we will never be ready for that day when Jesus comes. We will never see the kingdom of heaven. I just remind you that the work of the new birth or regeneration is God's work. It's not something that we do for ourselves. When Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, he was saying, this is something that God must do for you. You must be born from above or born of the Spirit. It's not something that you can do yourself. <clears throat> Our shorter catechism doesn't actually speak of the new birth in as many terms, but it, it has a question about, it, about what it calls effectual calling, and it's really dealing with the same thing. Do you know your shorter catechism? What is effectual calling? It's a work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, God persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ as he's freely offered to us in the gospel. It's the catechism's way of saying that God must do this work of grace in us. He must give us a new heart. He must renew our wills. He must open our minds. He must enable us to repent and to believe the gospel. That's God's work, and it's absolutely essential. Because as Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are other words, of course, that the Bible also uses to, to describe this, this work that, that God must do in us and, and our response to that work. He, he, the scriptures speak of repentance, which is our response to, to God's work in our hearts, where, where we see our sin and our, our lostness, and where by the grace of God we are truly sorry for it, and we cry out to God for mercy, as David did in Psalm 51, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, and so on. And faith in Jesus Christ, that's also something that God must give us, is a gift of God. Faith in Jesus Christ is a whereby God <clears throat> enables us to, to see, not only to see our sin, but to see that Jesus is the only one who can save us. It's a saving grace whereby uh, we receive and we rest upon Jesus alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. Lovely, lovely definitions that come from our shorter catechisms, which are so uh, true to Scripture. And without these things, without the new birth, without repentance, without faith, 
we cannot hope to be ready for that day when Jesus comes again. But when we have been born again, and by grace have repented and have believed in Jesus, then we are saved, we are converted. Let's use those biblical words. They're so, they're so important. I, I know sometimes we, we speak about people coming to faith in Christ, and there's truth in that. Of course there is. But the old-fashioned words, being saved or being converted, those are biblical words. The Bible speaks of being saved in the past tense. He saved us, Paul says, right into to Titus through the washing of regeneration. It speaks of being saved now. The, 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 the preaching of the gospel is foolishness to those who perish, he said, right into the Corinthians. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it was Peter who looked forward to the final end of our salvation, where he says you're looking forward to the end of your salvation, the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul. The Bible uses this word saved in, in all three ways. Saved in the past, when we come to repent and rest upon Jesus and trust in him. Saved in the being saved now in the present, and one day we will be finally saved when God brings his people home to glory. And all of these words are, are tied up in, in what we sometimes refer to as conversion. Except you be converted, Jesus says. Except you are turned around. My old Sunday school teacher, and I still remember fondly, Miss Strong, she used to talk about conversion as a, a right about turn. From heading away from God, we are turned around and given hearts to love him and to walk in his ways. That's conversion. And we need it. We must have it, or we'll not be ready for that day when Jesus comes again. So let's search our hearts, men and women, and, and be sure that this has happened to us. Not just that we've made a profession in the past. Not just that we've said a prayer somewhere along the line. Not that we're in membership in this church or any other church. Not that we're even in office in a church. Not even that you stand in a pulpit those words that I referred to this morning when I was speaking to the boys and girls where uh, I was saying about people who got it wrong, where they were standing before God at the last day and they said, or Jesus, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name done many wonderful works? It's one of the most solemn passages of Scripture. And Jesus said, I don't know you. Depart from me. I don't know you. They got it wrong. They prophesied in his name. There will be people who stood in pulpits, as I'm doing tonight. People in offices and churches. People who teach Sunday school classes. And as I read the scriptures, they will stand before God in the last day, and he will say, I don't know you. Because they've never been truly converted. That's why we need to be urgent and earnest about these things, men and women. And search our hearts. Examine yourselves. Examine the scriptures to see whether you're in the faith. That's a command of the Scriptures. So to be ready for that day, we must be converted. We need to understand it, and we need to experience it. The second thing, we, ought, we must be faithful. In this discourse here, Jesus actually uses a couple of illustrations um, of faithfulness, both directed to servants. Now, we read one of them from verse 45 of chapter 24. Who then is that faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants 
of his household. Here's a servant in charge of other servants, it seems. And when I think about this, it makes me think in particular of those of us who are in the ministry or in the eldership, who are in office in the church, and in a sense have been given a charge to, to watch over the, the people of God and to be faithful in God's house. Who's, who is this faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants of his household, his church, I believe, to give them their food at the proper time? And he goes on to speak of, of a servant who, who begins to become slothful and careless and lazy, and, and uh, he says to himself, well, my master's staying away a long time. And then he begins to behave badly, to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. But the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a phrase that Jesus used on a number of occasions. It's a very somber phrase, isn't it? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think what Jesus is referring to here is, is uh, what's referred to in other parts of Scripture also as unfaithful servants of God within his church, in a sense. Unfaithful ministers, unfaithful elders, those in charge of other servants. The hireling. Do you remember John chapter 10, the Good Shepherd chapter? Uh, the Good Shepherd, who gives his life for his sheep. But the hireling? When the wolf comes, the hireling sees the wolf coming, he flees and he just leaves the sheep to them. He's an unfaithful servant. Prophet Ezekiel spoke of such unfaithful servants in, in Ezekiel chapter 34. Listen to this, where God says through his servant Ezekiel, Therefore you shepherds, the Old Testament shepherds were, were the prophets and the priests and so on, the leaders of the people. Hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and has so, been, so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock but cared for themselves rather than the flock. This is a harling. This is an unfaithful servant. He's just looking after himself, not caring for the flock, not feeding them, not seeking to protect them. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. And he goes on to say what he will do with them. False servants, false shepherds, unfaithful servants within the church, within the household of God. We desperately need faithful ministers, faithful elders, faithful leaders within our churches. And I say with sadness, men and women, all too often we haven't had that. I'm long enough in the go now, and I've sat under different ministries at different times to know that they're not always faithful. When you hear a minister, a Presbyterian minister, as I did many years ago, saying, sure, we all, we'll all get there in the end, won't we? Meaning we'll all get to heaven in the end. That's unfaithfulness. It's not what the Bible says. The gospel is watered down and not preached fully and, and boldly and faithfully. That's the sort of faithfulness that Jesus is speaking about here. But in chapter 25, which we didn't read, there's another parable that, that speaks of faithfulness. From verse 14. It would be like a man going on a journey, Jesus said, who called his servants, 
poor servants, but not the same servants in charge of other servants, just servants, and entrusted his property to them. And you remember the parable, the one he gave five talents, another two talents, another one talent. And he went away. When he came back, he called his servants to find out what they had done with their talents. And the man with the five talents had gained five more. The man with the two had gained two more. The man with the one had hidden his talent, gained nothing. And Jesus says that the master speaks very boldly and strongly to him. To the first two, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. But the man who'd received the one talent and done nothing with it, uh, Jesus said to him, you lazy servant, wicked lazy servant. You knew I harvested where I had not sown and garnered where I have not scattered seed. Why didn't you put my money in deposit with the bankers? And then I would at least have got interest back. And he said, take this servant and throw him out into the darkness, this worthless servant where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's that phrase again. God requires faithfulness, not just of those who are in charge, as it were, or given responsibility within his household, those in ministry or the eldership or leadership, but every one of us have talents, haven't we, that God has given to us, and he expects us to use them faithfully for his glory. And only then can we hope to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. So be converted. That's the first thing to be ready for that day. Be faithful with whatever talents God has given you, whatever responsibility God has given you. Be holy. That's the third thing. I want to leave Matthew here just and, and turn for a little moment to Second Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 and from verse 10. We read these words this morning, but let me just read them again with you. Peter's referring to the day of the Lord when, when Jesus will come again. That's a phrase that is often used of this day. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. We have seen that, haven't we? The heavens will disappear with a roar. These tremendous cosmic changes that will take place. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. What a day that will be. This old world and, and this universe will be destroyed. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, Peter says, what kind of people ought you to be? Now, here's the, here's the, the tremendous application that Peter makes of this. If we're looking forward to this day when Jesus will come and, and this old world will be wound up, as it were, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, what kind of people ought you to be? Well, he says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Be holy. You ought to live holy and godly lives. Peter knew, of course, that he was living in, in what we sometimes call a day of grace. He refers to that in, in verse 9 of, of 2 Peter uh, chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. He, he says... Um, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some of you understand, slowness is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And there's the grace of God, isn't it? God hasn't forgotten his promises. He hasn't forgotten his plan that, that one day Jesus will come again to judge all men. He's not slow in keeping his promises, but he's patient and wants to see men and women 
come to repentance. That's the grace of God. But that day of grace will come to an end. Suddenly, like a thief, with its great cosmic upheaval, and that should spur us all, Christian friends, to seek holiness. What manner of lives ought you to live in all holiness and godliness? That holiness that the writer to the Hebrews said is so essential that without it, no man can see God. You see, true conversion, true repentance, true faith in Jesus, the, the new birth, should lead to a life of holiness. This is key to, to, to Christian teaching. And sadly, all too often, many have professed to know Christ. But that holiness has been absent from their lives. So while you wait for his coming, be holy. Follow after holiness, Christ-likeness. Be converted, be faithful, be holy, and lastly, be encouraged as you look forward to that day. Remember what Paul said, writing to Timothy, Now there's laid up in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have longed for his appearing, who look forward to his appearing. And I was saying to someone this morning, I think, after the service, isn't it, isn't it sad? Do you not think it's sad that in the professing church today, we seem to have lost sight of the, the second coming of Christ? We were so tied up with this world and the things of this world, and there are legitimate things that we must do. Of course I know that. But have we taken our eyes off Jesus? Have we taken our eyes off the fact that one day, one day he will come in the clouds of heaven, and that day will not be too long away. I'm not setting dates here, but for all of us men and women, our lifetime is very short. I'm now over 70. I can't have all that many years left, I don't suppose. And once this life comes to an end, after death comes judgment and the return of Christ at that judgment. It's just a blink, isn't it? That has come home more and more to me in, in recent years. But have we taken our eyes off that momentous event? Are we not looking forward to it, as Paul said we should be? And we can look forward to it if we know the Savior. Do you remember uh, the 98th Psalm, uh, the Psalm of Rejoicing, uh, where the Psalm is? Well, let me just look it up for you and, and read it for you so that I don't misquote it. The, the 98th Psalm, it's a Psalm of Rejoicing, sing a new song to Jehovah. Sing a song about his salvation. Sing a, a song about that salvation that's going into all the earth. But then at the end, at the end of the psalm, he says, let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let everything rejoice. Why? Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the world, the earth. And he will judge the world in righteousness and the people's with equity or fairness. Rejoice, because there's a day of judgment coming. What a word that is when you think of it. How many people in our town today, if you were to ask them, do you believe in God? And they say, oh, yes, I do. Do you believe there'll be a day of judgment? Oh, yes, perhaps there will be. 
can you rejoice as you look forward to it? It's a bit like saying, can you rejoice if you're going to court to be sentenced uh, for, for doing something wrong tomorrow morning? Can you rejoice to look forward to standing in front of a judge? But that's what the psalmist says in Psalm 98. Rejoice. Why? Because Jesus is coming to judge, and he will judge in perfect fairness everyone. And the Christian who's hiding in Christ, who's in Christ, can look forward to that day and rejoice. Because Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because my sin, the Savior, died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the justice satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Our girls used to like listening to a tape in the car by an American Christian called Michael Card. I don't know whether any of you remember him. He's probably quite old now, like myself. And in this tape, which referred to the Day of Judgment, and one of the verses went something like this. Speaking of himself, to be so completely guilty. That's what I am. That's what we all are. Given over to despair. And thinking of the Day of Judgment, he says, to look into my judge's face and see my Savior there. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope that every true Christian has. I am sinful. And if I was left to myself, I would be given over to despair. But on that day, by the grace of God, when Jesus comes again, I will look into my judge's face and I'll see my Savior there. Isn't that some hope when you think of it? And every true child of God should be able to look forward in that way and to be encouraged. Don't let your heart be troubled, Jesus said. You believe in God, believe in me. I go to prepare a place for you and I'm coming again to receive you to myself. Don't fear those who can kill the body. That's all they can do. But fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. Well, the writer to the Hebrews tells us that those who don't know Christ have only a fearful expectation of judgment. A fearful expectation. That's all they can look forward to. But not if we're in Christ. We have a tremendous hope even looking forward to that day of his return. That's, I think, why Jesus could say when he talked about this world in which we live with its wars and its rumors of wars and its famines and its earthquakes and, and so forth and so on. He says, when you see these things... Look up, for the day of your redemption draws nigh. Those are simple things, aren't they? We must be converted if we're to be ready for that day. We ought to be faithful, using our talents for, for the Savior. We should be following after holiness. And every Christian should be encouraged and keep that day ever before us. And look forward to it with joy. Can we do that? Let's pray for a moment. Mm -hmm.